if my idea of myself is that I am rotten, I'm no good, that I'm only valuable if I achieve, all those narratives, if that's what I think, boy, that's going to lead to a certain kind of life. But if I do say, no, I, I am sacred, I am chosen by God, I am loved unconditionally by God, I've been forgiven by Christ, I've been made alive by Christ, I've been made holy by Christ. When I change those narratives, it changes everything. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and our guest today is author, professor, and founder of the Apprentice Institute, James Brian Smith. Jim has just completed the fourth book in his Good and Beautiful series. It's titled The Good and Beautiful You, Discovering the Person Jesus Created You to Be. I spoke with Jim from his podcast recording studio in Wichita, Kansas, which just so happens to be ridiculously decorated in Denver Broncos colors. Enjoy. I get to talk with Jim today. James Brian Smith. Yeah, there you go. There we go. Hey, you got a new book out. I have a new book out, Nate. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Why did you write this book? Why did I write this book? Well, I wrote this book because I was having a conversation with Joe Davis, who you know from Renovara UK. Oh, Joe. Joe. Joey D, I call him. I was over in England, and he's used the, the Good and Beautiful books, Good and Beautiful God, Life, and Community in, in ministry settings. And he said to me over tea, because that's what you do in England, he said, well, you're missing one book in the series. And I thought, well, that's bold to tell an author that they're missing a book. But I said, okay, Joe, I'll bite. What am I missing? And he said, the good and beautiful you. And I said, why? And he said, because um, the good and beautiful God really helps people with their toxic God narratives and people have really bad God narratives. He said, so I'm grateful for that book. It's helped people, but people have equally toxic self narratives and it, you just can't, you can't plow around that. I mean, if, when those are there, when people really think that they're awful, terrible, no good, just rotten to the core, and a lot of Christians have some of those narratives, it's very difficult for them to begin to really believe that God loves them or to begin to live this kind of vibrant life that we're called to live. So, Nate, I knew when he said it that I was right, but I wasn't ready to write the book. You know, there's that old adage about when you're ready, the the book will find you. I think it's also true when you're ready, the, you can, the book you need to write will come out. So I needed to go through my own little journey, kind of a dark night period. And that, when that was coming to the end, that's when I went, oh, when the light was coming back on, I went, oh, I think I'm ready to write this book. And that began a process of a couple more years to write it. So that's why I wrote it. Born out of your own experience then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of those things you, you know in your head. Uh, I, I didn't write anything in this book that I, I had never really thought, but I needed to kind of live into the reality of it. It, may, it's, it makes a big difference when when you're writing that way. I don't know if you remember that movie, Finding Forrester. Do you remember that movie? I do, with Dan Whitaker. Forrester. Uh, no, 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 no. It's uh, uh, the James Bond guy. What's his name? Uh, oh, Sean Connery. Sean Sean Connery. Yeah, he's he a plays grumpy this. Old writer. He plays the grumpy old writer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and he just has this one sort of throw off line. He says, "Why is that? Why is it that that the words we write for ourselves are better than any other words we write?" And I think there's some truth in that. The ones. So in some sense, I was writing the book for myself, uh, and my own 
kind of journey. And I think some of the best writing comes when we're writing to ourselves. Yeah. No, I sometimes think we, we, we teach what we need to hear. Yeah. We write what we need to. Can you share a little about your journey? What, what happened and how did you? Well, it, yeah, it involves your dad. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so after the, the, after the good and beautiful series came out, um, this was in like 2009. Um, and we, Richard and I were at a, a Christian booksellers event and we had lunch and, and he said, um, these, these books are going to change your life. And I was like, wow. Okay. Thanks. He said, no, it's going to, it's going to move you into a place and it's going to be hard on your soul. And I, I had no frame of reference for that. And he didn't really go into any detail explaining what he meant. He just said, it's going to change your life and you need to guard your soul. You need to take the success that will come lightly in your soul and you need to guard your soul. And I said, okay, thanks, Richard. Cause, and I really, I mean, I thought he, he was just being nice or maybe it was a compliment. I don't know what he was, but I didn't really believe it. And he sounds made me like write a warning. What that it was a like. warning. It was. <laughs> and he, he actually made me write it down. I wrote it down on a napkin, uh, you know, take it lightly in your soul, guard your soul. I wrote those, um, but I didn't, I, I just didn't believe it. And, but he was right. And so kind of a strange thing that happens. I mean, we often don't think that success will be harmful to us. We think failure is, but what I've learned is failure just makes you sort of double down. It makes you turn to God. Success is this strange little thing that moves you into thinking that you did something and that, that you, maybe you don't have to lean on God and that, you know, so I, I went through a season where I got more caught up in, in trying to promote a ministry and, and the work that was happening with the books and good things were happening. In fact, great things beyond my expectations. But I didn't see that that was going to be damaging to my own soul. And and at a certain point, I just went, wow, I just don't feel, I feel kind of lost. And my wife, Megan, said, maybe you should talk to somebody. And that and that culminated in, in a, a process where I ended up finding a counselor, a therapist who was really helpful. And um, I was able to just sort of open up, which I'd never done. I'd done spiritual direction, but I'd never really done that kind of work. And so in the process of doing that work, I began to really get in touch with my soul. And so the the main theme of the entire book is 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 this soul that we are embodied souls and they have needs. And um that's that's what I began to see that I had neglected. So your dad was right. And then I write toward the end of the book that I, I at a certain point several years later, I went back to Richard and said, you know, you, you said this, uh, to me, how did you know that was going to happen? And he said, because it happened to me. <laughs> and I was like, wow. He said, I, I, you know, it's very hard because obviously that did happen to, to Richard. I mean, celebration of discipline changed his life and changed everything about his life. And so you don't, you don't see that coming, but, um, so he was, he was very kind to, to give me that warning. Uh, I just didn't heed it, but he said, "You know, we we learn what we learn, and sometimes the hard way is the best way. But it's not not the easiest." But that was the journey for me, Nate. I'm with you in that the narratives can be so destructive, and kind of the glasses we put on that colors everything um, moving forward in our relationship with God. What made a difference for you? I mean, how have you worked your narratives, and what is that process like? For well, for me, it's just the recognition that I am an embodied soul, 
um, we tend we live in a world that sort of defines uh, our our persons as a self, an isolated self, an individual that's in competition with other people. And um, that's that's the the dominant narrative of the kingdom of this world. You're a self. I'm a self. And um, everything that I'm doing and you're doing is in competition. So we're, we need to strive and achieve. And uh, we define our success on the basis of, as Henry Nouwen said, those three things, uh, how I look, what I have, what I do. And that's the world that we live in. So for me, it was being able to step back and say, look, none of those things actually matter, really. Uh, it, it, what really matters is that I'm an embodied soul divinely designed by God before the foundation of the world. And God has designed me with these incredible needs, the need to be loved, to be desired, to be wanted, to be, to have some kind of significance. And those aren't narcissism. That's, that's, that's a deep longing within our, our souls. But if we try to find that in some other source, like how I look, what I do, what I have, that's going to be futile. And so really it's just leaning into as Dallas would say, that, that we're unceasing spiritual beings with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And that, for me, that's what I wake up with every day. I'm Jim in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom. The successes of this world do not matter. And that's, that's hard to go against the grain. But that's, that's what it looks like for me. Many Christians know <laughs> that there's, you know, kind of the reality of some of the things you're saying, but yet, right, the tapes run. Uh, how do you move that from your head to your heart? Well, well said. I mean, the, the tapes that run, right? There's, there is inside each of us that, that inquisitor, that, that, that uh, accusing voice, and that's a, that's a daily battle. It's a battle to, 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 to stand up against that and say, no, that isn't how. Um, that's not who I am. That's not what I am. That's not what I'm here for, because everything is going to scream the other direction. That that is what is is most important. So, I mean, I love how you phrase that because it it is a challenge. That what's going on inside of us is so crucial. That that inner life that's unseen, that is what spiritual formation is about, is largely about our ideas. I mean, Dallas said we live at the mercy of our ideas, and so if if my idea of myself is that I am rotten, I'm no good that I'm only valuable if I achieve all those narratives. If that's what I think, boy, that's going to lead to a certain kind of life. But if I do say, no, I, I am sacred. I am chosen by God. I am loved unconditionally by God. I've been forgiven by Christ. I've been made alive by Christ. I've been made holy by Christ. When I change those narratives, it changes everything. What does it change? It changes the way I see myself, first of all. And so I can, I can actually learn how to love myself properly, not, as I said, narcissistically, um, but to really value who I am and then to see that in other people. To, and, and that's one of the biggest changes for me is that um, when I see someone, whether it's a, a person in poverty or a person of great wealth, and I, I, I can see both of those people in one day. When I see that, I, I can see that they're the same, that they're sacred souls and and treat them in that way it's it really changes everything that you see in terms of me and others in front of me uh, it's 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 huge there's a sort of freedom in that right like when i see others as beloved image bearers it makes it quite difficult to uh, control or dehumanize them but there's a freedom isn't there absolutely 
you know, that was that was one of the biggest ahas for me in the process is that here I was sort of trying to work on my own understanding of my soul. But as I began to see that that we're all this way, that we're all these incredibly precious, sacred beings, uh, divinely designed by God, um, th- then it just it shifts away from from that. And it, it makes such a huge difference. Um, you know, when I think about what, what our country's gone through in the last several years, I mean, we had the hashtag Me Too movement. I mean, that was an important thing to have because people were harassing a people. But if you saw someone as a sacred soul, as a sacred embodied being, you wouldn't harass them, you know, and, and, and the same thing with race issues. You wouldn't, all of these things that are problems in human life would go away if we could just see the sacred value of each person. Um, and instead of seeing them as how they look, what they do, what they have. Or what they can give me. Or what they can give to right. me. Right. Yeah. That kind of transactional. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the way of our culture to humanize one another. And how can you help me? <laughs> right. right. Again, trying to establish my value. So if you do something for me, then my credit goes up. Right. I'm, my value goes up. But yeah, but that doesn't work either. Because what happens when you get criticized? What happens when people aren't there? What happens when you don't get any likes on Facebook? Um, I want to be at the place where uh, I understand who I am, regardless of what others say. Not that I'm callous to what others say. I want to take criticism and that sort of thing. But but my identity is not dependent on what others say about me, but but on who God says I am. In the book, after each chapter, you have different um, practices, exercises for people. Can you talk a little about those? Yeah, you know, the entire series, all, all of the previous three books, one of the things that, that Dallas Willard taught me is that the disciplines, um, well, they're obviously not merit badges where we're trying to earn God's favor, but but they have a therapeutic impact in that certain practices reinforce certain narratives. And um, so the practices that are in, in the book after each chapter are designed to reinforce the true narrative uh, of what that chapter is about. And so this idea that you have a soul, that's what the first chapter is about, that you have this divinely designed soul and you're in, in this body, the practice is holy leisure. And the reason for that practice is um, holy leisure is simply doing nothing that gains anything. It's, it's being present, not being productive. It's learning how to just exist. And the reason that that's the first practice is because uh, it reinforces the narrative that you are divinely designed by God. Here you are, this embodied soul, and you didn't do anything to get here. Like you didn't do anything to merit that. You didn't earn it. And so um, holy leisure, which is actually a very hard practice. In fact, when I field tested this with with uh, three groups of people, um, there I found there were people who couldn't do it for five minutes. They couldn't just sit and do nothing for five minutes. Because we're so wired to be productive, to do something, to be accomplishing, because we want to multitask or omnitask. You know, we want how much can I get done in a day? So to sit there and go, no, let's take, in the case for like you and me, I can do 30 minutes. That's a great practice for me. I'm a little more contemplative, so I can do that. But, but 30 minutes of doing nothing of just, like this morning, I went out and I sat on my, de- my deck and was just with my two dogs. And I didn't accomplish anything, but it was a lovely time. You just and stared at a wall? Like, what do you... What, I stared what at my fruit trees is what I did. 
<laughs> I, I just uh, I just admired my my pear tree, my apple tree, and and my peach tree, yes. and I just and and just uh, until a dog started barking next door, and that kind of ruined my my <laughs> my my bliss. But otherwise, yeah. otherwise, I was just being. I wasn't doing. How do you invite God in into that? I mean, right? Because there's it's a wonderful practice to do. What makes it a spiritual practice? Well, it allows me to be present, and then when I'm present, I can connect to God better. I tend to run, you know, I'm doing a lot of things, I'm going to meetings, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of projects, and it's hard to just be still and connect with God. So when I can just, and it takes me five to ten minutes just to kind of be present where I am, but once I can get there, then I can just sort of say, hey, hello, Lord, <laughs> and we can maybe maybe have a little conversation. And God's so gracious to just uh, wait for me to get there because, you know, God could knock me over. Go, Come on, Jim, you would pay more attention to me. But instead, God just says, all right, he's going to finally slow down, create a little space. <laughs> there he is. There's my boy. There he is. Talk. <laughs> <laughs> Are there other practices that have been helpful for you in your journey? Oh, so many. I mean, obviously, you know, the the 12 in your dad's book, um, Celebration, that I read in college. Uh, I still practice those. I practice them differently than I did then. I was just thinking in terms of narratives, in terms of what's, what's Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, here's one, one that really struck me. I remember when I was writing The Good and Beautiful Life, and that book follows the Sermon on the Mount. So I was, when I got to the part where Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be angry. And I said to Dallas, you know, what, what's a good practice that helps with anger? And he's without missing a beat, he just said Sabbath. And I was like, okay, didn't see that coming. And I said, explain why. And he says, well, because Sabbath is letting go of control. Sabbath is, is um, saying, look, I'm, I'm going to not accomplish. I'm going to not achieve. I'm going to just enjoy being present and with family and friends and food and fellowship. I like all those F's. I'm just going to enjoy this day. And so you let go of control. That's, that's huge with anger. And then the second thing is if it's done properly, Sabbath should be a joyful experience and it's hard to make um, a joyful person angry. So he just, and that was, uh, so the light went on for me. So Sabbath has become uh, an important practice for me. And uh, I, I try to do it Friday night to, to Saturday night that in, in the rhythm of my life. That works pretty well. And um, but that's been been really wonderful for me to have that day. And I just I look forward to it. Like even now, I can't I'm, I can't wait for Friday night. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> and how does that help with your narratives? Again, the, the biggest narrative that thinks Sabbath does for me is to, to recognize that God is God, that I, I don't have to do anything to, I'm not running this universe. So when Jim steps out of doing anything, it's going to be okay. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the teaching pastor at, at my church and I'm there every Sunday for worship, but I preach once a month. And so when I'm preaching, I know that I have to get everything done by sundown Friday because I don't want to touch it. I don't want to be and so for me, that's been a real challenge is to learn how to get everything done so that I can just say, look, that work is done and I will get up Sunday morning and that sermon is ready to go and I'll give it and I'll trust God to be with me when that happens. But uh, 
there's everything within me wants to keep working on it and massaging it and getting it better and editing. Just go, no, I got to let it go. I worked on it. God was with me. I planned. I did all those, the preparation. Now I just rest and then get up and do it. What do you hope for people reading the book? I hope that people in reading the book will see how amazing they are. Um, just the, the beauty and wonder of who each of us are. I mean, our souls are massive. They are these beautiful, non-physical part of the reality of who we are. And, and our bodies are amazing. And I, I hope that people would just, would they would read it and say, wow, I mean, I am, I am amazing. And there's a God who made that, who made me that way. And therefore that God must love me deeply and to really value themselves and then to project that onto others, everybody that, that they see, they would say that that person is a person of sacred worth. I know there's a lot of folks who can struggle with the idea of moving into their belovedness um, because it can feel like self-help or um, sort of, I don't know, weak's the right word, but kind of, you know, overly emotive or something. What what would you say to those folks? Well, I mean, your question has a lot behind it because that was what kept me from writing this book for so long was I thought, I don't want to write a self-help book. I don't want to write a book that says, um, and some some listeners may remember back to um, an SNL character, Stuart Smalley, who was a, a parody of uh, of a bad therapist whose mantra was, I'm good enough, I'm smart That's... enough, and doggone it, people like me. Yeah, you know, just yeah sort of right in the mirror, look, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look in the mirror and say that. And, you know, that's that's vacuous. It doesn't have any solid foundation. But when you think about scriptures like, you know, uh, I knew you before you were formed in the womb. Um, you've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, this This idea that God foreknew us before the foundation of the world. I mean, that's real. I can build my life on that idea that that there's a God who who one day knew there was, let there be Jim. And that God has been with me every breath I've taken my entire life. That to me says, okay, then that is the foundation for my self-worth. It's, And that's why the subtitle of the book is Discovering the Person Jesus Created You to Be. It's not who you create you to be. Jesus created us to be. Um, the, the persons that we are, um, if I can just use you, Nathan, for a second, I mean, you, you are Nathan Foster. There's never going to be another one. You were God's design to come into this world, into the family and time and place and body that you were born, the experiences that you've had. And some of them have been rough, but God's been with you. With, I mean, the uniqueness of your life and your story is fascinating. And, um, so as I, as I think about you, uh, I'm blown away because I remember you as a little kid, you know, I was going to go here for Nathan, you know, <laughs> Nathan was by the way, the cutest little boy on the planet, that's, his smile, that's right. That's right. I, you, Oh my gosh, you would just, <laughs> I, your little smile. And when, I remember when I babysat you and we went to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, I took you to the movies. I didn't tell your parents and we saw Bill and Ted, but you know, just watching your life. And when I read, when I read Wisdom Chaser, I mean, I was, ah, I just wept in places thinking about the sacredness of your life 
And uh, that's the foundation. Not not you look in the mirror telling yourself, I'm doggone it, I'm good enough. It's no, the creator of the universe has said, you are of sacred worth. There's a truth about who we are. Right? Yeah. Like it's just leaning into what's true. Reality. Exactly. Well, well said. It's the truth about who we are. My favorite Christmas song is Oh Holy Night. And I love the line. And he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I mean, that's the incarnation. And he appeared. Jesus came. And what we when we look into the manger, our soul feels its worth. It's like this God came for me. I must be of sacred value. Jim, I'm curious, are there are there more good and beautiful things you have in store for us? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, I mean, since this book has just been coming out over the past year, uh, and some people know that story about Joe Davis that I told. Some people have come up to me and said, well, I, here's the book I think you should write. <laughs> I got number five for I got, you. <laughs> I got the good and beautiful, and here it is. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't see it on the horizon right now. But uh, I, mean, I mean, I feel like it's complete now. It wasn't complete before. I thought it was for quite a while, but now I can't look at that series and think that it ever really was. Now I look at it and say, no, it is. This isn't, you know. And I, there was one, I got a letter from a, a lady who said, I think it's the, it should be the first book in the series. I don't think it's the first book in the series. I think it's second. If you're asking the order that I, I would think Good and Beautiful God is the is the primary, like, who do we think God is? And then good and beautiful you second, and then life and then community. So you got a little, little Narnia order <laughs> rework in yeah, here. The, the magician's <laughs> nephew or whatever, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it depends on where you start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jim, always fun to talk with you. Thank always you. fun, Nate. Thank you. And that was James Brian Smith talking about his new book, The Good and Beautiful You discovering the person Jesus created you to be. You can learn more about Jim, his writing, and his work with the Apprentice Institute at ApprenticeInstitute.org. That's ApprenticeInstitute.org. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. I'm grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at Renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our institute on our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morcon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.